At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysu. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trijicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Ruger, Rugged, Reliable Firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Callingest Calls Made. Double Nickel Taxidermy, Where Hunting Memories Are Preserved. Taurus, maker of the Raging Hunter and other fine handguns. Now here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Welcome to another weekly DSC's Campfires podcast. And this particular week, we are in a hunting camp out in the farthermost point that you can be in New Mexico and still not be in Arizona. We've got several people here tonight. We've been on a uh, hunt that we did that we sold through the Lubbock chapter of the DSC, the Lubbock Sportsman's Club, back in August. And uh, we've got Mr. Callaway Huffaker. We've got Dr. Carl Clary. We've got also our kind of almost a regular sometimes with us in, in terms of Gary Robertson and his son, Steve. Outside, the temperatures are approaching the zero degrees temperature, and we've been here trying to hunt what? We've been trying to hunt coyotes, <laughs> but we're not doing a very good job of that. It, it's been an interesting several days, hasn't it, last three days? Well, it has been. We've seen a lot of country, a lot of beautiful country, and of course, I've been fortunate enough to have hunted the ranch before, but, you know, it's always... It's rewarding to me to take someone else, you know, to country they've not seen before. And uh, although, you know, we kind of compared it to some other places oh, yeah. we may have hunted, but every place is unique and this one's no different. And there's a lot of it here. And uh, the numbers of coyotes are way down. Uh, seems like the elk are probably still pretty good. A few deer, I think, are coming back. But you know, we were chasing coyotes, and there weren't many here, and I'll be the first to say they whooped me. So, you know, that's the way it goes. Well, that, that's happened, that happens sometimes. Like, oh, you, you know, you wish it doesn't happen in certain instances. But this is a big old ranch. This ranch is about 300,000 acres total. It runs from basically Arizona east almost, what, almost halfway into uh, to, to New Mexico. and <laughs> It seems like that, doesn't it? It, it does when you start driving it, by golly. And, 
you know, it does change somewhat as far as terrain, but it's kind of typical, you know, western New Mexico, most of this. And, and it's not mountainous country. It's, it's no. more high desert, uh, which is typically pretty good pretty good predator country, but it's been a little bit slow, this trip. It has, but that kind of happened. Cowboy, you were, or Cal, sir, <laughs> you bought this hunt at the Lowe chapter of DSC back in August, and uh, I happened to be there, thankfully, that night, and we introduced this, and that was an absolutely great, great event. It is a great event. It is a great event. And that's, of course, DSC is such a great organization, and and thank you for, for buying the hunt, and thank you for being patient throughout the hunt as well too. Well I find it entertaining that Gary says it's 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 rewarding to take Carl and I on a hunt that we don't see any coyotes. <laughs> but you know that's I guess uh, his definition of rewarding that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well Carl you now to be fair we did see some coyotes today. You know? <laughs> we we had to work for it. <laughs> we, we did and unfortunately we were able to take a coyote this morning that came in from a long way really a pair of them and I want to come back to that pair thing in just a little bit he sacrificed himself they they wasn't needed to sacrifice I think that was one of those answers to many many prayers that were floating around because really we anticipated the reason we chose this ranch to take you guys on is because really felt the opportunities here would be really good on coyotes because of the diversity of it because if they weren't coming to a call in this part of the country you know, maybe they'd be coming over here. And, and unfortunately, the, thing, the way things worked, it wasn't quite that way. But to me, sometimes you learn the true character of a person when hunts are bad. And after spending time with you guys, God, this has been so much fun. <laughs> we had a good time. <laughs> and to me, there were times we, we tried so many different ways in so many different places. Now, I want to come back to the pair thing. We're, we're here, this will probably run about a week after we recorded this, but Gary, we saw pairs. We saw one, one other individual, Coyote, throughout that time frame that we just would not come in for whatever reason, but I think we spooked him off the area that we were driving to. Yeah, this time of year, is, is, it's their mating season, and, and typically Coyotes, you know, run in pairs, and uh, especially this time of year, and you know they're monogamous. You know they right. have they pick the male and the female stay together, and they raise that litter of pups. And uh, this morning, I, you know, we were lucky enough, and I, I don't know somebody was I guess grinning at us on that first call because we saw they had the pair come rolling in, and what was I was most surprised about was the one that was the most aggressive responding to the call was the female and it cost her life and that just doesn't happen you know I, I maybe one out of 20 times or 30 times and uh, and this was not a young female this was not a young female this was a female that I would say looking at her teeth we've got a vet here but I'm going to say she's probably six or seven years old Sure. And, uh, you know, her, her bottom canines were, you know, pretty much perled off. And her top canines were, were sure enough showing a lot of wear. So she's been there. And, uh, you know, to get her to roll in there that aggressive was just a shocker to me. I don't know. They came from a long way. They came. We saw them come from a long way. Yeah. They, you know, we didn't have to guess on that. I mean, I don't know how far they came before we saw them, but... Uh, 
They were free to clean across that valley. I know that because I was watching the video camera. I was trying to film this. Steve this morning wasn't with us. Steve normally films for you on Carnivore. I don't know how far was that when we first saw him. I guess 800 to 1,000 yards. I would say yes. It was close to 1,000 yards because they had just appeared out of the brush. And I heard you say something, but I just looked that way, thankfully, and I was trying to get the camera on them. And uh, we tracked that rascal all the way up until she got shot. And we'd been calling, you know, for a series before that. So, you know, if you think these coyotes can't hear, uh, I think that was a pretty good lesson this morning. Because I think it was on the second series when I saw him, the beginning of the second series. It was, so, yes, sir. You know, that's probably three minutes in the call, and the coyote, coyotes moving like that can cover a lot of ground in three minutes. And uh, yeah, they were we flying across that snowfield this morning. Yeah, it didn't take her long to get there once we saw her. But you know, that those coyotes, I, well, I think I made a comment at the time. They came from over a mile away. Yes, sir. Yeah, it looked like they came off the top of that hill, and, and they were just a big open area. And you were choosing particularly open areas where we could see coyotes when you were calling too. Yeah, I like to. I like to. If I'm going to call, I want to put the coyote in a situation where I think we can kill him. And I think the, where you set your butt down is 80% of your killing success. Well, actually, it's more than that. It's 90%. And that's why, I, I, you know, I preach to, to y'all and let's get on the leading edge. I don't want any obstructions between me and the, where we're shooting. I want to... I want to be able to kill that coyote. If, if we shoot one down, I want to be able to swing on the other one and try to pick him up. So I don't want anything in the way. I want that to be a wide open field. And I like to set up where there's no shelf that breaks off and then you know, can see beyond that. Right. Uh, I want us to be able to see from where I'm sitting all the way down to the bottom of the wash or whatever and up the other side. That way I know exactly where that animal is so he didn't you know, disappear, go out of sight, and then I've got to worry about, okay, where's he going to pop up? Because if he pops up, a lot of times he's too, you know, too close for me to react to. Oh, we were set up with the wind a certain way. And as that coyote was running in, there was a point at which you barked to stop that coyote. Why? Uh, I, I barked. I knew the, the wind, what pressure there was, was from left to right. And, of course, she was going to the right-hand side of the call which you, that's what they're supposed to do. And and I knew I had, there was still some cushion in there, but the wind switches, we've seen that, you know, every, most every call we made, it changes some, you know, sometimes more drastically, but uh, for sure 20 or 30 degrees, and I didn't want her hitting that scent cone, you know, so I, I went on and barked her when I knew she was killable and I knew my partner was going to get her down. All I had to do was stop her. So I just barked her to a stop, and he put her down. And down the coyote went. Yep. <laughs> About <laughs> <There> time. <laughs> and like yesterday, I, we tried to stop that coyote. You know, he was a bigger, a big male and re real aggressive. I barked and tried to stop him, and I can't stop no, him. No, no. He, he rolls he, right up over the call, and... Of course, he gets a little stink on him of uh, my scent, and once he gets that, he's, you know, it's one way nonstop. He was in high gear. And he's going. <laughs> yeah, he, he started out in high gear, and then he increased no, that no, gear yeah, a little bit, and then, little and then he, he increased that gear. Yeah, he got in a little faster gear. But uh, you know, I, what what Gary was saying, I've learned a lot from him this week. 
I've been hunting predators since I was a kid, and several things that he's taught me is to get closer to the call is one. Uh, the other thing is to be more aggressive in in your calling, um, a lot more aggressive than what I usually am. And so I've, I've thought, you know, that, that I've, I've learned quite a few things from this week, even though Gary didn't show us very many times. <laughs> yeah, we don't know if you learned anything good or not. <laughs> That's right. I'll just take it back home and try to see. <laughs> we're, we're giving Gary a hard time, but I can tell you, I've hunted with Gary a lot. I've never seen anything like that we've experienced these last three days. Well, we've, we've hunted some places that... <laughs> you know, you really didn't expect to see a whole lot, and we would still we were calling in a bunch of coyotes, and and for whatever reason, I think the coyote population here on this property simply is is down considerably for whatever reason that might be. Well, I'm seriously considering a refund. <laughs> <laughs> you think the DSC chapter? Will <laughs> no, but you know, I I know Larry well enough now after spending three days of of heartache and sorrow with him that he, he might feel a little compassionate. <laughs> a little remorseful. <laughs> 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 what I think his calls for is another hunt down the way or somewhere. Why don't we go to our place and, and we, we can guarantee some dogs. There we go. Well, it's mm-hmm. a bad sign when you have to look for a track. Mm-hmm. And we we that's what we did. I mean, we... We resorted to looking for tracks, and and thankfully we had we we dealt with high winds, we dealt with snow, we dealt with all kinds of different things, and we can take that. But yeah, low population is hard to deal with. But you know, it's every good. time we set up, every place we set up, you're like, this is perfect conditions, and the scenery was beautiful. The scenery yeah, was you know, out of this world. The hunting was side sidestep. It was just fun to watch all the. Just the, the beauty of this place. Well, Carl and I have been hunting together 40 years, and, and you know, we don't really care about what we get. It's about who we go with and, and the fun that we have and the, and the new country that we get to see, and, and yeah. this was a great trip. I have the opportunity to hunt with a lot of people, and, and I'll tell you, you're right. I totally agree in, in, in every respect. I want to come back to Cal. Tell me about the gun that you were using, because most people that hunt predators these days, that's probably not their top choice or the one that you see most of. What were you using? Well, that's my first gun that my dad gave me when I was, uh, I think it was 9 or 10. It's a 600 Mohawk and 243, and... Um, it's just a real good workhorse of a gun, and, and you know, I, if you're not familiar with a Mohawk, it's got a short barrel, and uh, we did a lot of road hunting, pickup hunting out of out of it when I was growing up. Right. And it, it's something you can stick out the window, and it, it, it doesn't have a long barrel, and it works really good. And it's just a it's just a good overall gun. I would dearly love to see Remington bring that one back. Very frankly, because it, it to me is one of those guns. It's a user gun. It it's is. not one of these guns that you want to use for shooting a thousand yards, even though you could, yeah. because those barrels that they use were extremely accurate. But at the same time, as far as maneuverability and accuracy out to 300 yards, by all means, those are absolutely fantastic guns. Carl, what about you? You were using a different gun from him, from well, Cal. I used a two twenty three uh, Thompson Thompson centerfire. Uh, it's, it, I had to borrow 
Cal kind of messed me around. He told me this trip was a month from now. <laughs> so I was trying to get stuff together. I worked all weekend, so I had to borrow his gun. <laughs> but it, it worked just fine. I loved the gun. It was fun to look at. Well, it, 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 it fit where, very well as far as the whole thing was camouflaged. I think it was a TC scope even. Yeah, it was. And it, it was camouflaged. I can't remember the pattern, but it looked like one of the mossy oak patterns almost. If it, I didn't really it think it was mossy oak. Yeah. Yeah. on your best. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah, I think it's that same mossy oak pattern kind of yeah. thing. So, Steve, you, you you film Gary all the time, and, and I've been very blessed to spend time with you in the field, and I'm so glad that you were able to come on this trip because if nothing else, you drove the last two hours of a 15-hour <laughs> drive or something I could get here. But beyond all that, it, with, let's talk about the camo thing a little bit. Do you think it's really important that somebody is totally camoed when they're when they're out hunting predators in particular? I would say mostly on predators, especially coyotes. I don't on deer and that kind of stuff, not near as much. But a coyotes' eyesight to me has just always just shocks me. And just any kind of movement and just. And, you know, even still wearing the best camo, you still got to get in the shade or anything to break up your outline. Right. You've, you've got to have advantages on the coyote because they'll, they'll whip you more often than not. And that's just kind of how it seems to be. You've got a reputation of seeing game before anybody else does. Well, and and it's, it's true because I've been with you and I've seen it and I'm going, <laughs> what the heck is he looking at? And you go... He's right there. He's right there. What are you looking for when you're out there? Because, I mean, part of the time you're looking for animals to approach, but the other time you're looking through the camera to try to record everything that's going on. Well, there's no doubt if I would have been there this morning, I would have seen those cows. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just any kind of What'd you say, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, actually, a lot of it helps. Me and Dad have a... It's nearly silent communication just little bitty noises and so if he sees it first he lets me know right out of the gate and you just got to be prepared on coyote right more than anything because anything could break loose at any moment and so you got to be just on top of your game yeah they could come in right after you start the call or you thinking that this isn't going to work and all of a sudden there they are kind of thing yes sir in filming a coyote you don't get that much opportunity to film so every second counts so you've got to be on top of it you can't you know lay back and shut your eyes yeah and now those, those that pair this morning I, I thankfully concentrated on the one that carl ended up shooting but they were coming in so fast and they were I, I, they were jumping i mean clearing the snow and clearing stuff it was just absolutely beautiful watching those cows come in that's one of the most amazing sights watching them jump over the little sage anything yeah. like that watching them bound in when they're pointed at you and coming in hard like that that's just gets your heart racing better than anything to me there's something about those cows in it gary yeah they're to me <clears throat> of all the animals i've hunted they're the most missable you know if you if you don't get him stopped and even if you do, sometimes the adrenaline is such that, you know, make a bad shot. But if you don't, we've, and we've talked about it before on these podcasts. Oh, yes. There's a moment of truth. Yes. And I think that's where the guy with a lot of experience, and, it, and, that, and the only way to get it is to be out there year after year after year and know when that, uh, that moment of truth is about to occur and be able to take advantage of it. Because if you don't get him killed, 
when that moment of truth is about to happen, or when it happens, it's all going south. It's, for it's me. a lost opportunity. It's right gone. There. Then it's gone. everything is back in his right. to his advantage, because the coyote running is is a tough target, and uh, so that's I think that's one thing that you know of all the seminars I do. That's one thing you can't tell anybody. It's only experience in the field, calling and seeing a lot of coyotes come up that'll make you a better, more efficient killer of a coyote when he does respond. You gotta be continually vigilant though too. Yeah, you gotta see that coyote as, as early as possible. And, 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 you got, and it all goes back to reading body language. Yeah, right, exactly. Because yeah. he'll tell you what he's gonna do you know, a lot of times. And, uh, and so you, you, you gotta take advantage of that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about ravens or crows or blue jays. We were calling a couple of afternoons ago and, uh, or during the day, and there were blue jays flitting back and forth. And then all of a sudden it changed. We had all kinds of bluebirds around us. What do you think happened there? Because well, normally when I've seen those kind of things, man, I am looking for an animal. Well, I am too. Uh, although when we had that big flock of jays come in, it was, I noticed those birds were gathering. There was a sound that we were playing that kind of, I won't say it excited them, but yeah, I guess that's what it did. But it it made it acted like it made them nervous, and uh, apparently it did. So they ganged up, the and then they started. Yeah, something agitated. Yeah. They were vocal, and then they started moving toward the call and came as close as they could until they ran out of trees, and then yeah, they kind yeah. of stayed they right ran there. out of trees, right? But they went as close as they could get yeah. and have the the shelter of those trees, and then they moved off. But the ravens, I watched the ravens a lot in this country, and and a lot, you know, many times they'll follow coyote in. In fact. You know, if a coyote's just out there mousing and feeding on his own, a lot of times there'll be ravens, ravens with him. And it's simply because there may be something left over they can pick up. Will, uh, will crows do the same thing as you get farther north? Pop, and yeah, crows will as well. Yeah, but just this country, you just have ravens. Right, exactly. Bigger bird. Exactly. Uh, and, of course, in South Texas, there's nothing like the Harris's hawks. and they t the, the Harris's hawk is my best partner when I'm hunting. Because I promise you they won't squeal unless they see a coyote or bobcat. Really? They'll fly in there and they'll sit on the limb, but they will not vocalize unless they see that Until coyote. they see that animal. And then when they see it, you better get busy because they're, they, they're, there's, an, there's a predator there. But uh, they're great. And, of course, uh, if you go further north, you get in the magpies. Yep. And they're great. Yep. They'll, yep. they'll fly right with the coyotes coming to the call, raising cane. So I always call that air support, <laughs> you know, because this is, this is war. When I go out there, I, you know, it's a game, but I love it all. And, you, you know, if you use that air support, you use every asset you can to, to make you better at this game. We'll switch horses a little bit. Let's talk about air support. We were talking earlier about sandhill cranes. And, Cal, I know you and Carl do a fair amount of sandhill crane hunting. Tell me a little bit about that as well, too. Because, among other things, because we were driving, this is a huge ranch. So you had many opportunities <laughs> during the course of going from point A to point B, which may be five miles and maybe 20 miles, to, to visit. But one of the things we talked about, you in particular, is you, you mentioned sandhill crane hunting. Well, my back porch is one of the biggest roosts for sandhill cranes in West Texas, and and it's just um, 
something I've done since I was a kid. But sandhill cranes are, are you know, the the new uh, goose in our area. You know, it's it's just really become popular. A lot of hunters are coming in from around the state and out of Texas to hunt, hunt sandhill cranes. And our area seems to be a real hot spot for them. What do you think is the fascination with people when it comes to the sandhill cranes? Well, the sandhill crane is it's such a huge bird. You know, the wingspan's six foot. And, and you know, you, you shoot at them and you think, well, they're really slow moving. But because of their size, they're, it's very deceptive and they're moving a lot faster. And they're a very challenging bird. They're very wary. Uh, and it seems like uh, as the years have gone on, they've become more and more wary. Used to, we could uh, hunt them with, uh, we used uh, trash bags and we right. used those to decoy them. Uh, then we went to uh, wind socks and that, that worked for a little while. Now we're using full body uh, plastic decoys and unless you're just perfect with your setup, you're, you're not going to get them in. Let's talk about the setup. What is a perfect setup? And let's talk about wind direction and at the same time. Well, they always land into the wind. Right. And so you want you want the decoys to be set behind the shooters. And so we always set behind our shooters, shooters about 20 to 30 yards in front of our decoy set. And our decoy set, uh, we'll use anywhere from 15 to 30 birds. And we try to set them in, in kind of a half moon uh, with the hunters uh, in inside the moon. So that as the birds are approaching, they're seeing a spot to land, and we're out in front of them. Uh, they'll start following uh, uh, that that decoy set and turn and in, into the wind and start coming into them. And you hope that you can get them low enough to get a shot at them. They've gotten pretty pretty wary, and so uh, quite often you'll see them come in high, and then they start breaking wing. And when I say breaking wing, they start. It's 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 almost like they're crashing. Right, uh, they're cutting from side to side, and they're losing altitude really, really fast. Um, and if and if you're not in front of them, you're not going to get any shots off. In those kind of situations, is it better to have a blue sky? Is it better to have a no? Uh, you, want it, heavy, you want it cloudy, cloudy, and as low a deck as you can possibly because that's going to force them even lower. Yes. And I, in years past, I've watched them fly to a fence line where they knew there were hunters there. They've been, and all of a sudden, just before they get to that fence line, they pick up high enough to where yeah. they feel safe in terms right. of, and then they drop back down, kind of thing. And unlike the hunting we're doing out here, where we're not wanting wind. We want wind when we're hunting cranes because the wind forces them down too. And, you know, it's harder for them to fly and they're wanting to get closer to the to the ground to, uh, you know, have easier flying. And so as they're, as they're coming in and it's windy, quite often you'll catch them right on the deck. Is there ever a day in your part of the world that lower fan handle where it's not windy? Yes, there is. Because every time I used to spend a fair amount of time. Well, up there. Don't put that in the podcast. We don't want anybody to know that. Because <laughs> we've got a really special place and we don't want everybody to know that. <laughs> Carl, when it comes to, to, to shooting those birds, what what gauge, what size shot do y'all generally use? I usually, I always take my 12 gauge and four or fives. Um, and we, you know you, that's what Cal was talking about how big they are. So you think that bird's closer than it is, until you start getting shooting a few. It's like okay, I've got to get them where you can see that red, and really identify that red the, right right between their eye uh, and the the, the, the beak, back I their head, right top, and that really makes a difference. I, my son and 
Cal and I, we started, that's where he, probably his first bird he started shooting was a crane, and the first one he held up, it was way taller than he was. And uh, in fact, he called us today. Well, I, I was going to yeah. go there about yeah. cooking, so yes. Cal, Cal's one of the best cooks there is, and you know, we, everybody talks about ribeye in the sky, and it right. really is incredible. And I think my son today was cooking his first crane when he somehow we had service. And when he called, he yeah, said, Yeah, we hit these little pockets yeah. that we service, and then it'd yeah. be gone for hours again. That's why he was wanting to know, How do you season that crane like Cal does? <laughs> <laughs> so, Cal, tell us, do you mind telling us your secret when it comes no, to? No. So, the favorite way that we cook it is is more of an hors d'oeuvre. Uh, it's not kind of a, a main course, but an hors d'oeuvre. And we slice the breast across the grain. It's important to slice it across the grain. And you slice it about a half inch thick. And then you uh, season it and uh, let set in the season for a little bit. Cut uh, slices of bacon, and I take a, a, a one-pound package of bacon, and I cut it into three pieces. And it doesn't take much, just something to keep it uh, moist. And then at, just before you cook it, put it in some kind of oil, uh, something just to keep it uh, moist. And I use Italian dressing mostly uh, and just uh, dip it in the Italian dressing, put it right on the grill. And as soon as your bacon's done, it's ready. Pull it off and it's it's really good. It'll be the first meat gone at his parties. Yeah. Is that right? It'll be the first meat mm-hmm. gone. We, we have a big Christmas party every year. And, and this last year we cooked 20 crane. And... Uh, you know, that's, I don't know how many pieces. It's, it's one of those big aluminum pans heaping yes, with sir. sandhill crane. And uh, before the party was over, people were coming by and asking me, do you have any more? Have any more? <laughs> that sounds like a really good excuse to go back hunting again, by the yes, It's good. <laughs> You guys, we, we talked a little bit of it. Both of you do a fair amount of quail hunting. Tell me about some of the quail hunting that you guys do and the dogs that you use. That's my passion. It's if your I passion. could do anything, watch that dog work, and I don't. Cal and I went a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't have to carry a gun. I just want to see my dog work, and you know, it's kind of like seeing your kid success, succeed. Is man, he's doing good, and it's just fun to see just that enjoyment that that dog gets out of finding those birds. It really is. I, I over the years, I've been on numerous quail hunts where I carried an over and under shotgun. There wasn't a shell to be found anywhere on my body because I truly enjoyed watching those dogs work. What what breeds do you guys deal with, and why do you deal with those dogs more so than, say, the whatever other breed there might be? I, I started the GSP a long time ago, and she was the best dog I've ever had, ever will have. And that's and a German short hair pointer. German short hair pointer. Yes, sir. And they're, they're kind of an all-around versatile breed. I like them because... My my dog's name is Radar right now, and when he's on when he's hunting, he's full bore. You you know he can cover thirty forty miles in a day. He goes to office with me every day. He gets out of my truck, goes under my desk, and people don't even know he's there. He goes to sleep, and he's and my girls come in and give him rides and give him love. He crawl up in her lap. You would not know <laughs> he's a crazy man when he gets in the field. We come time to hunting. Yeah, you know the best compliment I had on him with this last hunt, Cal and I did is, you know the. The, he outdid the guy's dogs 10 to 1, and when we got through, the guy said, that dog's a beast. I'm like, yep, that dog is a beast. He's a beast. 
Yeah, what about you? What do you use primarily? Well, I, I uh, raise and run Weimaraners, and, and Carl and I have hunted together, like I said, for many years, and and uh, we, we, we hunt our dogs together. We put them all down at the same time. We don't split them up. I know that's not the way the books tell you to do it, but that's the way we do it. We mostly hunt on foot, and um, it works real good because the, the short hairs are out there at 50 to 75 yards, maybe even longer, and my wines are in there at, at the 30 to 40-yard range. And as you're walking, you know, the the big dogs are ranging out there really far, and then my dogs are staying in pretty tight. And it just it's just a good um, symbiotic relationship. They work really well together, and it's a lot of fun. We we talked earlier today while we were driving around about the Weimaraners because my experience with the Weimaraner goes back when I was a little kid. And he's absolutely beautiful dog, great pet. My dad ran coonhounds, but all the Weimaraner wanted to do was chase our horses kind of thing. But the, beside all that... Uh, we were talking earlier, too, about blue quail. Now, the folks that are not familiar with, with gambles or blue quail, they're runners. And y'all were talking about hunting down around Marathon somewhere where I've hunted, I've shot birds, and we use retrievers to retrieve those birds. Y'all were talking about getting out there, and you walked many miles, as I recall. Tell me how you hunted those birds down there. Using Were you using your own dogs for that as well, too? Yeah. We used our own dogs, and uh, uh, we we hunt blues at home. Uh, where we where we hunt, uh, we've got a lot of blues. We've got a few bobs, but a lot of blues. And the way we hunt them is we bust them the first time, get them out uh, from the covey. And once they've busted from the covey, then we start working them as singles, and they work a lot better. And our dogs work really well. And it's it's kind of fun because Carl's dogs will be out there, and they'll be, you know, he'll be flushing birds not not because he's running wild but because the birds are running in front of him and as soon as they're starting to to bust up and and break up into singles then we're walking through and my dogs are right on them and and they're pointing them and we're pointing singles and, and doubles and it's just it's just it's just a real good method and we've used it for years that sounds like fun because a lot of times like so we well, all the times we use, I, I love to watch the dogs work, but the only time we use the dog on the blue quail is just to recover the birds. Yeah. My dog will get out there a long ways, and he might find a covey that we're never going to find. So you see him going on point. Well, you try to get there as fast as you right. can. Right, yes. And, and the covey, by the time you get there, probably won't be there. Then the dogs release, and then we, we go ahead and find them from there. And sometimes you never see the covey again, you know. Your dogs are real active. I want to come back to that just a little bit, but I want to talk. To, I want to ask Gary and, and Steve. You guys run hounds. What do you do? What do you do? How do you prep your dogs to run the races that they do? And, and, and where I'm really going with all that kind of stuff is in terms of nutrition. What do you do to keep those dogs in great shape so that when you do get an opportunity, because you don't get to hunt every day, I'm sure no, you'd like to. You know, so what do you do to your dogs? Uh, you do. I, I just feed them a you know quality food. Uh, not Rachel Ray. Not, not, <laughs> not we talked about today. Uh, the best food I can afford to put in them, and then I you got to be careful not to overfeed a dog. You know, so you know Carl knows better than anybody else. But you know, some of these dogs they they have a tendency to get overweight, and uh, you know that's the worst thing you can have is a dog that's 
you know, wanting to get out there and do, and he can't because, just like me, he's too fast. I was going to say, I think you described <laughs> me on some of those uphill yeah, climbs today. It would be great if we could hunt every day, but right. we can't. And, uh, you know, you know, because, you know, we're going to be hunting. We're going to be calling coyotes. Or we may be hunting deer. We may be hunting turkeys. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, that all of those seasons are great, but uh, that cuts down on on the areas where we can go and you know and, and do the predator hunting. When you when you're feeding your dogs, as you're getting ready to where the point you know you're going to be running those dogs a lot, do you, are you more interested in the protein side of things or the energy side of things as far as your the diets in those dogs are concerned? Well, and I'll come back to Carl. Carl's obviously a, a, a veterinarian that deals with these things all the time. He's the pro, but I, I turn the fat content up on them a little bit. So give turn them the fat content up. And especially in this cold weather, you know, they need a little more of the higher fat content. and To uh, increase that, that energy level. Yes, yes. And so that's what has been, you know, work seems to work for me. But I, you know, I never feed them that 32% protein like some of these guys do. You know, a hound, uh, I think 26 to 20, 24 to 26 is about as high protein as I want to put in him. Uh, bird dogs that are sure enough more active, they're probably burning more calories. Maybe you can get away with that 32 stuff. Or, I don't know. It'd be okay. interesting to see what Carl says. Uh, exactly. On, on hounds, like such, it's easy. <laughs> Excuse me for like uh, bobcat or, or coyote or lion or bear. Is there an optimal protein level that you recommend uh, at, from your experience? So the problem I have is what protein is it? Thank you. Know, you. <laughs> is it digestible protein? Right. Yeah. And like an egg white's 98% digestible. But your shoe, being leather, is not digestible, not, not but digestible. it still shows up as protein. Right. And so it's really hard. So that's where I tell people you, you have to trust your company that's making it, to, that they're honest, and they know what they're doing for dogs. And I, I, getting back to the dogs being overweight, I tell people we're so used to seeing fat people and fat dogs that when we see a thin person or a thin dog, we think they're skinny. And just like you said, I think it's terrible to get a dog, a working dog, overweight and say, then go go run 20 miles because he's going to do it. Right. But he's going to kill himself trying to do it. Yeah. So that's, dog food's real frustrating for me. You know, as a veterinarian, people like, they don't really want to trust me that I'm, they think I'm making money on dog food. And I, I tell them, I, I make money on dog food when you feed crap dog food. Because they got to bring the dog I to you. I see you more often. <laughs> exactly. You know, right. just, it's true. Exactly. It's true. Well, just the other day when we were hunting in Marathon, you know, we... Us guys put up, put on our boots twenty two to twenty five miles. Yeah. Our dogs probably did. Oh my gosh. Two to three times. Yes. In the same time. Yeah. And they were worn out, but the, they were ready to go the next day, and they were ready to go because they're in good shape and they've had good. They're not fat, but they're not skinny. You know, they're athletes. They're, they're just performance athletes. They are. You were talking an interesting thing to me. You mentioned protein, and I mentioned protein. You talked about digestible protein and total protein. Those two are totally different. Yeah. I've dealt with that same stuff within rations in whitetail deer or mule deer or whatever. And you look at protein levels, and just the, that protein level doesn't tell you a whole lot of anything it's, as far as I'm concerned. I want so to go advertise like that's the, yes. the holy grail. And I tell people if you're going to go run a marathon, do you go eat a big steak the night before or pasta? Yeah. It's pasta. Yeah. Cause, and I like, protein's great, but right. if, if you're going to run a long distance, it's not protein that's going to no. get you there. No. 
Interesting, interesting stuff. It really is. Anything you guys like to talk about, we have. We've covered a lot of different ground here. Uh, how, how do your dog's feet hold up in yeah, there you donkey go. country? I, I expected them to have problems. I, I couldn't imagine. I, of course, I do. I give them a pain reliever before and right after. Um, those dogs, all of our dogs did great. I run my dog a lot at the ranch. I've got an old railroad track that goes through me for seven miles, mm. and it's that chap. And I always feel like that right. toughens his feet up pretty good. Yeah. Yes. But, and they're black-footed dogs, aren't they, most of yours? Uh, yeah, they're they're not real black. But, I mean, I, I was really – I couldn't believe that Cal and I didn't have more problems with the dog's feet. Yeah. Let, let's talk about that just real quickly. That subject came up several times today about light-colored dogs and dark-colored dogs. What's the difference other than the color? Is there a difference? No. Not really? No. It's how that dog is taken care of and what has... Yeah. Gotcha. And I think the hunting dogs have gone white because they're either easier to see. Easier to see. Yeah. My, my first short hair was liver colored and she would hide pretty good. But so I kept, she had an orange vest on, but right. she was worth the, worth the, the trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of goes back to, you know, whether you're a Chevy or a Ford guy. Right. You know, yeah. kind of, kind of what you, what you're used to driving and what you want. Uh, but my dogs never go out in the pasture to hunt that they aren't, you know, wearing orange vest and everything because that mousy gray color blends mm-hmm. so well. Yes, sir. And I've never had one uh, shot, but I have been around dogs that have been shot. And yes, sir. It's, and it, you know, it can happen so easily. And yes, sir. You just need to be careful with them. And so you, when you have a dark dog, you want to make sure that it's... Well, that's a good point. It really is. Unfortunately, not too terribly long ago, I was up on a ranch that does commercial bird hunts, and the hunter was not paying attention like he should have been. And the dog obviously wasn't wearing an orange vest, and we ended up putting that dog down because of the the bird shot that it it, it got. So that's really good advice right there. Did you bury the hunter? I think the guy that owned the dog, he was very close. I think the guy left before that could happen. But but I started, yeah, you're right. To me, that's an unforgivable thing that happens. And, and, uh, you know, just uh, I'm speaking out of turn for Gary and, and Steve, but, you know, our dogs are our family. Yes. You know, they, they're not just our hunting companions. Right. They're our family. And, you know, they are, are more to us than just, just a pet. And you want to make sure that they're safe and they're well taken care of, whether it's feed or, you know, putting a vest on them or taking care of their pads, whatever it is, you're making sure that that animal's uh, well taken care of. I took our our nephew on this last hunting marathon and, and I made him stay out after we got, got in from the hunt. And he said, well, I want to go in and take a shot. And I said, no, you take care of your animals first. And, Amen. And, yeah. he's, you know, he's just 12 years old and he didn't really understand, but what I'm trying to teach him is that those dogs have worked their butts off for you all day long and they don't have the luxury of going in and taking a shower no. and eating a steak and those kinds of things and so you've got to take care of those animals first before you take care of yourself and you know I hope that young man learned something and, and that's the way I was taught when I was his age so. yes sir I was too and I know Gary feels the same way <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that, the dogs get taken care of first when you get when you find them all day uh, and then you put them up and then you start worried about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Well, gentlemen, I just want to tell you what an absolute great pleasure and honor it was to share camp with you. I'm looking forward to our, our next opportunity. And we've got all kinds of great things coming up in the future and kind of along the lines of what we talked about here a little bit tonight, but also in terms of with the DSC chapters, with the various events that they have. We've got another one coming up in August. And uh, I'm sorry, in August in Lubbock for the another fundraiser that's going to be there. We just finished the DSC uh annual convention our 40th annual and if you want to learn more about dsc you can go to biggame.org and if you want to learn more about the burnham brothers game calls such as we've been playing with here and gary we've talked about this particular call the the what's now called the freak that really Hopefully. provides that sound that animals truly make and what they can hear so it's going to be out for too very long and they can learn more about that by going to where uh, really, we haven't put a lot of press out about it. I mean, we've shown it on TV and we've done some podcasts right. about it, but we haven't put it out anything in print until we have it available. And when it becomes available, where can they? Just go to burnerbrothers.com. Burnerbrothers.com. So you can continue to check there. You, like so many other people, are waiting for parts to be brought in right now. Yeah, we're, unfortunately, we're not as big as Ford Motor Company. We're waiting on the chips as well. So. Well, this to me is more important. <laughs> yeah, but this is way more important. It's way more important for I'm concerned. And it's been a great hunt. And I always tell folks, you know, you can tell... A lot about a, you know the character of someone you know when the hunt doesn't go as like you want. Amen. If it goes great, you don't you don't learn anything about those people. But this hunt's been slow. It's been tough, and I like the guys better now than when we started. So we haven't had any fights. So uh, uh, I think we're going to do some more hunting in the future. I think we will too. And I just want to really thank you two guys, Cal and, and Carl, for being here with us and having your patience. And I'm like, like Gary just said, I know Steve feels the same way. We can't wait to spend more time with you in the future. So we had a blast. We did too. And thank y'all so very much. Thank you for supporting DSC and all the great things they do through conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. And we really appreciate the time that we got to spend with you guys. Look forward to spending more time together. And we look forward to spending more time with those folks who are listening to us right now. Remember to uh, to have a great time on the outdoors, and uh, we'll be right back here next week with who knows what we're going to talk about then. But appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Thank you. One more. <laughs> One more done. Well, I've got to get on my app deal and find those. Yeah, yeah. those oh, it's, it's the, the easiest way. They're, they're, it's available wherever podcasts are available to yeah. begin with. But it's, it's DSC's Campfires with Larry Weiss. And I've been doing it now for almost, this is like the 130th, 140th episode. You, uh, you can go to, to a DSC's yeah. website, big B-I-G. O-R-G slash DSCS dash campfires uh, uh, backwards slash whatever they call that. Yeah. Or you can go to waypointtv.com and it's the same thing. It's a slash DSCS dash campfires kind of huh. thing. And then we do a, a podcast Luke and I do on, on Sporting Classics all the time as well too. Not Rachel Ray. Uh, the best food I can afford to put in them, and then I—you got to be careful not to overfeed a dog. You know, so you know Carl knows better than anybody else. But you know, some of these dogs—they—they they have a tendency to get overweight, and uh, you know that's the worst thing you can have is a dog that's 
you know, wanting to get out there and do, and he can't because, just like me, he's too fast. I was going to say, I think you described <laughs> me on some of those uphill yeah, climbs today. It would be great if we could hunt every day, but right. we can't. And, uh, you know, you know, because, you know, we're going to be hunting. We're going to be calling coyotes. Or we may be hunting deer. We may be hunting turkeys. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, that all of those seasons are great, but uh, that cuts down on on the areas where we can go and you know and, and do the predator hunting. When you when you're feeding your dogs, as you're getting ready to where the point you know you're going to be running those dogs a lot, do you, are you more interested in the protein side of things or the energy side of things as far as your the diets in those dogs are concerned? Well, and I'll come back to Carl. Carl's obviously a, a, a veterinarian that deals with these things all the time. He's the pro, but I, I turn the fat content up on them a little bit. Turn little the fat content up. And especially in this cold weather, you know, they need a little more of the higher fat content. and To uh, increase that, that energy level. Yes, yes. And so that's what has been, you know, work seems to work for me. But I, you know, I never feed them that 32% protein like some of these guys do. You know, a hound, uh, I think 26 to 20, 24 to 26 is about as high protein as I want to put in him. Uh, bird dogs that are sure enough more active, they're probably burning more calories. Maybe you can get away with that 32 stuff. Or, I don't know. It would be interesting to see what Carl says. Uh, exactly. On, on hounds, like such as easy, <laughs> excuse me, for like uh, bobcat or, or coyote or lion or bear, is there an optimal protein level that you recommend uh, at, from your experience? So the problem I have is what protein is it? You Thank know, you. <laughs> so is it digestible protein? Right. Yeah. Like an egg white's 98% digestible. But your shoe, being leather, is not digestible, but it still shows up as protein. Right. And so it's really hard. So that's where I tell people you you have to trust your company that's making it, that they're honest, and they know what they're doing for dogs. And getting back to the dogs being overweight, I tell people we're so used to seeing fat people and fat dogs that when we see a thin person or a thin dog, we think they're skinny. And just like you said, I think it's terrible to get a dog, a working dog, overweight and say, then go... Go run twenty miles because he's going to do it. Right, but he's going to kill himself trying to do it. Yeah. So that, that's dog food's real frustrating for me. You know, as, as a veterinarian, people like they don't really want to trust me that I'm. They think I'm making money on dog food, and I, I tell them I, I make money on dog food when you feed crap dog food because they got to bring the dog I to you. Then. See you more often. <laughs> exactly. You know, right. just, it's true. Exactly. It's true. Well, just the other day when we were hunting in Marathon, you know we. Us guys put up, put on our boots twenty two to twenty five miles. Yeah. Our dogs probably did. Oh my gosh. Two to three times. Yes. In the same time. Yeah. And they were worn out, but the, they were ready to go the next day, and they were ready to go because they're in good shape and they've had good. They're not fat, but they're not skinny. You know, they're athletes. They're, they're just performance athletes. They are. You were talking, the interesting thing to me, you mentioned protein, and I mentioned protein, you talked about digestible protein and total protein. Those two are totally different. I've dealt with that same stuff within rations in white-tailed deer or mule deer or whatever, and you look at protein levels and just the, that protein level doesn't tell you a whole lot of anything as far as I'm concerned. I want so to know, advertised like that's the, yes. the holy grail. And I tell people, if you're going to go run a marathon, do you go eat a big steak the night before or pasta? Yeah. It's pasta. Yeah. Cause, and I like, the protein's great, but right. if, if you're going to run a long distance, it's not protein that's going to no. get you there. No. 
Interesting, interesting stuff. It really is. Anything you guys like to talk about, we have. We've covered a lot of different ground here. Uh, how, how do your dog's feet hold up in yeah, there you rocky go. country? I, I expected them to have problems. I, I couldn't imagine. I, of course, I do. I give them a pain reliever before and right after. Um, those dogs, all of our dogs did great. I run my dog a lot at the ranch. I've got an old railroad track that goes through me for seven miles. And it's that chap, and I always feel like that right. toughens his feet up pretty good. Yeah. Yes, but, and they're black-footed dogs, aren't they? Most of yours. Uh, yeah, they're they're not real black, but I mean, I, I was really I couldn't believe the cow, and I didn't have more problems with the dog's feet. Yeah. Let, let's talk about that just real quickly. That subject came up several times today about light-colored dogs and dark-colored dogs. What's the difference other than the color? Is there a difference? No, not really. No. It's how that dog is taken care of and what has. Yeah. Gotcha. And I think the hunting dogs have gone white because they're either easier to see. Easier to see. <laughs> my, my first short hair was liver colored and she would hide pretty good. But so I kept, she had an orange vest on. But right. She was worth the, worth the, the trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of goes back to, you know, whether you're a Chevy or a Ford guy. Right. You know, yeah. kind of, kind of what you, what you're used to driving and what you want. Uh, but my dogs never go out in the pasture to hunt that they aren't you know wearing orange vest and everything because that mousy gray color blends it so hurts. well yes sir. and i've never had one uh shot but i have been around dogs that have been shot and yes sir it's, and it, you know it can happen so easily and yes sir you just need to be careful with them and so you, when you have a dark dog you want to make sure that it's well, that's a good point. It really is. I, I, unfortunately, not too terribly long ago, I was up on a ranch that does commercial bird hunts, and the hunter was not paying attention like he should have been. And the dog obviously wasn't wearing an orange vest, and the, the, we had to end up putting that dog down because of the, the bird shot that it, it, it got. So that's really good advice right there. Did you there. the hunter? I think the guy that owned the dog, he was very close. I think the guy left before that could happen. But but I certainly, yeah, you're right. That that that's to me that's an unforgivable thing that happens. And and uh, you know, just uh, I'm speaking out of turn for Gary and and Steve. But you know, our dogs are our family. Yes, they they're not just our hunting companions right. they're our family and you know they are are more to us than just just a pet and you want to make sure that they're safe and they're well taken care of whether it's feed or you know putting a vest on them or taking care of their pads whatever it is you're making sure that that animal's uh, well taken care of i took our our nephew on this last hunting marathon and and i made him stay out after we got got in from the hunt and he said well i want to go in and take a shot and i said no you take care of your animals first and, amen and yeah. you know he's just 12 years old and he didn't really understand but what i'm trying to teach him is that those dogs have worked their butts off for you all day long and they don't have the luxury of going in and taking a shower no. and eating a steak and those kinds of things and so you've got to take care of those animals first before you take care of yourself and you know i hope that young man learned something and and that's the way i was taught when i was his age so. yes sir i was too and i know gary feels the same way oh yeah <laughs> you take, the dogs get taken care of first when you get when you find them all day uh and then you put them up and then you start worried about yourself absolutely uh, absolutely 
Well, gentlemen, I just want to tell you what an absolute great pleasure and honor it was to share camp with you. I'm looking forward to our, our next opportunity. And we've got all kinds of great things coming up in the future and kind of along the lines of what we talked about here a little bit tonight, but also in terms of with the DSC chapters, with the various events that they have. We've got another one coming up in August and uh, I'm sorry, in August in Lubbock for the another fundraiser that's going to be there. We just finished the DSC uh annual convention our 40th annual and if you want to learn more about dsc you can go to biggame.org and if you want to learn more about the burnham brothers game calls such as we've been playing with here and gary we've talked about this particular call the the what's now called the freak that really provides that sound that animals truly make and what they can hear so it's going to be out before too very long and they can learn more about that by going to where uh, really, we haven't put a lot of press out about it. I mean, we've shown it on TV and we've done some podcasts right. about it, but we haven't put it out anything in print until we have it available. And when it becomes available, where can they? Just go to burnhambrothers.com. Burnhambrothers.com. So you can continue to check there. You, like so many other people, are waiting for parts to be brought in right now. Yeah, we're, unfortunately, we're not as big as Ford Motor Company. We're waiting on the chips as well. So. Well, this to me is more important. We'll <laughs> yeah, but this is way more important. It's way more important for I'm concerned. And it's been a great hunt. And I always tell folks, you know, you can tell... A lot about a you know the character of someone you know when the hunt doesn't go as like you want. Amen. If it goes great, you don't you don't learn anything about those people. But this hunt's been slow. It's been tough, and I like the guys better now than when we started. So we haven't had any fights. So uh, uh, I think we're going to do some more hunting in the future. I think we will too. And I just want to really thank you two guys, Cal and, and Carl, for being here with us and having your patience. And I'm like, like Gary just said, and I know Steve feels the same way. We can't wait to spend more time with you in the future. So we had a blast. We did too. And thank y'all so very much. Thank you for supporting DSC and all the great things they do through conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. And we really appreciate the time that we got to spend with you guys. We look forward to spending more time together. And we look forward to spending more time with those folks who are listening to us right now. Remember to uh, to have a great time on the outdoors, and uh, we'll be right back here next week with who knows what we're going to talk about then, but appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC's Campfires. <laughs> DSC Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by the Texas Wildlife Association. Working for tomorrow's wildlife today. TRHP Outdoors. Can attract boots for the trails less traveled. Voight, the finest in hunting gear. Pyramid Air, for all things air gun. And Ripcord, rescue travel protection. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment.
pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.